Well, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Joshua, the third chapter. Joshua, the third chapter. As we continue our study, our series, Fueled by Faith, through the book of Joshua. And as you do, in the text this morning, we will see how God not only makes promises, but he also provides the way. He provides the direction. He provides the guidance. Uh, when God gives you a promise, it's like it's, it's, it's perfectly packaged. It's like, it's like buying those, those gifts. Like for men, if you're buying a shirt, but sometimes you can find those gifts that have the shirt, tie, and the handkerchief. Everything's just perfectly packaged. You don't have to go outside to get anything extra. That's how God's promises are. He, he gives you everything you need wrapped up in the promise. So all you need to do is just accept the promise. And we're, we will see how God and Israel accepting God's promise, they are provided with everything they need to get there, to this promised land. So Joshua, the third chapter, let us stand for the reading of God's word. This is the word of God. Hear the voice of Christ. Then Joshua rose early in the morning and set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord, your God, being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you, it, you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you sh shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people, so they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing, before, uh, passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man, and when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests Bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away 
at Adam, this, the city that is beside Zerathan, and those flowing down towards the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. I want to put a tag on this text. Following the leader. Following the leader. Growing up, think back to your favorite childhood game. What was your favorite childhood game that you loved to play? You know, games are a little different now. Like games back then didn't involve things like batteries, televisions, anything electronic. I remember growing up playing games like curveball, freeze tag, you know, hide go seek, all those kid games, duck, duck, goose. Those memories bring joy. They're fine. But have you ever played a game, follow the leader? It's simple as you just get a bunch of people, and they follow the leader. You get in a straight line, and wherever the leader goes, you go. If the leader goes right, you go right. If the leader goes left, you go left. This is a game that the extended care plays often going down to the bathroom. Follow the leader. Follow the person in front of you. Don't go to the left, don't go to the right. In the text this morning, God is about to play a divine game of follow the leader with Israel. He is showing Israel just how to get to the promised land. They are getting ready to cross over to the promised land and begin the conquest, but before they do, he, he not only has promised them the land, but he says that I will actually show you the way. That's the type of God we serve, one who is fully able to, and capable of giving us everything we need to get to where he wants us to get to. So in the text this morning, as we are watching God lead Israel over the Jordan into the promised land directly across from Jericho, we need to understand that when God makes a promise, he will give you divine direction to get there. As Israel are taking these next steps, they, they know that God has called them to cross over the Jordan, but the question is, how are we going to do it? You have millions of people. You have a flowing river. How, how do we get all these people over the river at the same time? in one piece, but they know that God has promised. But God being the gracious God that he is in in this critical time of transition for Israel, not only does he command them to come over into the land, but his presence comes down and he is amongst the people and he walks with them. It's like he's holding their hand and saying, follow me. Thinking about Christmas shopping, how frustrating those experiences could be sometimes. The, the toughest experience is when you walk, 
when you walk into a store like Home Depot or Lowe's, you, you, you have, I have no clue where stuff is. I just know like lumber is like there, like appliances are like there, but like all those knickknacks and doodads, it's the only, only brother flu, you know, every aisle and where everything is at. But as you're walking through, the most helpful people aren't the ones who say, go down to aisle seven, turn right, and look up on the left, and it's right by the batteries. Those aren't the helpful people. You know who the most helpful people are? The people, when you tell them you're trying to find something, they say, follow me. And then they take you directly to where you need to go. When we're looking at that text, God is saying, follow me. I know where you need to go. I, I, I know where you need to be, so follow me. He is showing the people how to cross over during this trust, this, this, this difficult transition. My, my question for us this morning is, are you following God's lead? How do you know when you're headed in the right direction? How do you know when that was a good choice? How do you know if you should have went right or if you should have went left? Have you ever wondered, what, what is God up to in my life? See, for us, on, on, on this side of the text, we, we have a promise. God has promised, Romans 8, 29, to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ, his son. He has called, he, so we know what he's going to do with us. And then we know what he's going to do, Habakkuk 2 and 14, he is going to uh, uh, pour out the knowledge of his glory, and it will cover the earth as the water covers the sea. He, we know what he's going to do. But God, how do we get there? So as we are walking through life, we have this promise, but how do we get there? And I just come with you this morning to show you from the text, realize that you should follow God's lead because his promises provide divine direction. In other words, God gives divine direction. So fueled by faith, Israel is now crossing over to the promised land. And this historical record, it, it is full of so many details. And I believe so for future generations so they can see exactly what God was doing with the people. He, he's concerned about the big things and the little things. And this, this account, it, it somewhat parallels their crossing of the, the Red Sea. I'm, I'm kind of looking at it like, what, what God did in the previous generation, he's doing for this generation now. He kind of wants to show them, if I did it back then, I can still do it now. I, I, I'm the same God, the same power, the same might, and you can have the same trust, the same faith. So he, this parallel account as they cross the Jordan, a, a second exodus per se. They were exiting captivity into the wilderness to, to leave Egypt, but, but now they're kind of exiting the wilderness to go into the promised land. No more waiting. Their steps, their next steps will be the first steps of conquest. So the question had to arise, how will we cross this river? And which way do we go? So in order to cross this river, God provides Israel with divine leadership. And in the text, Yahweh gives Israel a framework for how they were to get to the other side. 
So as we look at this text, we, we see a framework beginning to, to fl- flow off from the text. And the first thing that we see is God is calling Israel to gaze upon his glory. See, in verses 1 through 4, Joshua gathers the people, and they, they leave where they had been camping out, and they move parallel right next to the Jordan. And as they are moving to the Jordan, the, the commanders go throughout the camp and tell the people, get ready, get ready. We're about to go. Get ready. Get your stuff. Get ready. Don't, 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 don't be caught slipping. Man, make sure you're ready to go when we go. And when, Because when we go, uh, uh, we're all leaving at the same time. And the way that you would know that we are about to go is when you see the Levitical priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant. When you see the Ark of the Covenant begin moving, that's your cue. So as those those details are being flushed out, they also say, and don't get too close. Don't get too close. But the reason why I don't want you to get too, that, that, that you can't get too close is because you need to see where you're going. So when we look at this text, God is calling Israel to to gaze upon his glory. Well, how so? The text says, as as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, so this Ark of the Covenant, the the Ark was commissioned by God in Exodus 25, and what the Ark was, it was a a rectangle container uh, made of uh, acacia wood, and it was overlaid with gold. So the first thing that we know, this thing is shiny, it's blinged out. It's sweet. You can see it from afar. You can see the reflection. You can see the the sun glistening off of it from afar. And within the ark is placed the the covenant, the Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod, and and some manna. So some things representing their trek through the wilderness. But this wasn't just that box. Because for Israel, the ark represented God's presence with them. This was an indication that the, the God of heaven, Lord of all the earth, is in the midst of the people. He is with them. So whenever the ark came out, there was a, a, a confidence would stir and build that God is with us. He hasn't left us. He is, he is in the midst of us. He is walking with us. He, he has not left us or, or forsook us. He, uh, he is right here with us. And now God is going to use his very presence to be the thing that shows them the way. See, prior to this, the children of Israel, they were led by the the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. But you'll see from now on, the ark is going to lead them. His presence is going to be with them. But the officers go on and they say, yet there shall be a distance between you and it. Uh, for, for you have not passed this way before. So the distance, 2,000 cubits, that is, that is about a half mile, a little over a half mile. So you are to stand back at least a half mile from the Ark of the Covenant as it goes. Well, why? The first reason is because you need an unobstructed view of where you're going. You, you have millions of people. You need to be able to see where you're going. 
You don't want to be following somebody just to be following somebody. Because they might lead you in the air. They might lead you off the path. They may lead you somewhere where you're not supposed to go. So you need to stand at a, at, at a good distance in order to see where you, should, where you should be going. But not only that, he emphasizes they had not been there before. Besides Joshua and Caleb, and maybe the spies, this, this was new. This was a new experience. They hadn't seen it before. Had it come their way. But then also, I believe the reason why they needed to stand at a distance is because God wanted to communicate to them, don't get ahead of me. When I'm working in your midst, don't get ahead of me. Don't get ahead of my plans for you. Don't get your hand all messy and in the mix, trying to fix and figure out your own life. You, you, don't get ahead of me. If I'm going to lead you, let me lead. So God provides divine direction when you gaze upon his glory. See, for Israel, the glory of God and his manifest presence was represented by the Ark of the Covenant. For us, the glory of God and his manifest presence has been provided for us in the person of Jesus Christ. So for us, we, when, we gave, when we are being called to gaze upon the glory of God, you know, you know what the Bible is telling us to do? We need to be looking at Jesus. Looking to Jesus. Because Hebrews 1 and 3 says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is the glory of God. Jesus is the exact representation of God the Father. He is the image of the invisible God. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of what? Of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So as we are looking at this text, as we are walking through life, we need to be mindful in order for me to figure out which way to go in life, I need to be looking at Jesus. Like an airport runway, God's glory in Jesus should act as a beacon providing direction in a dark and dimly lit world. Like those lights on a runway. They're always blinking and, and flickering, and as a passenger, we don't know what that means. But the pilot does. And as God is working in our lives, we need to be looking at Jesus' example, Jesus' words, and, and his, the principles and precepts. We need to be looking to him in order to know how we should live. What does that mean? We need to, it, it, it's almost like a throwback to that time, that, 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 that fad. At WWJD, now everybody was having the bracelets. What would Jesus do? And the bracelet was kind of there to provide the person like a, a pause. Like, okay, in this situation, what do you think Jesus would do? Helpful a little bit. But that's almost what we need to be thinking about. In this situation, what has Jesus said? What has Jesus commanded? 
What is Jesus' uh, desire of me? What does he require from me in this situation? If, if you're, you're in high school, you're in elementary, how do you deal with that bully? How do you, how do you figure out the details of life? How, how, how do you figure out on the job to deal with the boss who was a bully? How do you figure this stuff out? Because left in our own, you know what we're going to do. We're going to act a fool up in here. But God is calling us to something different. And the only way we can figure out that path is if we're looking to the glory of Jesus. We're looking at him. So what does this mean? I look to Jesus as the perfect model and example of life and godliness. But ultimately, I look to Jesus for my rescue. I look to Jesus as my rescue because from the outside looking in, I can never do what Jesus would do. Because sin has so tainted me, has so defiled me, that I will always choose to do what I want to do. But when I am in Christ through repentance and faith, now I no longer have to worry about what I would do. All I'm counting on what he has already done. Because I'm in Christ. When my life is hidden in Christ, no longer does the Father see me and my sin and my iniquity, but his life is placed upon mine, and the Father now sees a sinless perfection. And I walk in that grace. So I'm looking to Jesus. My life needs to be hidden in Christ in order to truly understand how to do life. He has to lead me. He has to guide me. Ask yourself this question. This is how we practically walk this out. When you are faced with a tough decision, who do you call? Practical. When you're looking for an example of behavior, who do you look at? But then also, is your life hidden in Christ? Do you love Jesus and depend upon him daily? Because if not, then you're really doing life on your own. You're not beholding the glory of Jesus Christ. You're you're doing things your way. So God is calling Israel to gaze upon the glory of God, but then also God is calling Israel to be devoted to his duty. Be devoted to his duty. Verse 5 simply says, then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. What is going on? In preparation for God to show up and for his presence to to do something, Joshua's calling the people to consecrate themselves. Consecrate, consecration, what, what, what is that? I've heard about a consecration service at church, but what, what does that really mean? Consecration was the setting apart of yourself for a relationship with God. A, it, it, it was a, a, a mindset, a, a ritual, a washing, cleansing, and, and the whole purpose is to set yourself apart for the purposes of God. Not to do what you wanted to do, but for what God wanted you to do. So you would set yourself apart. You could uh, uh, 
consecrate a person, utensils, buildings, or things that, that were in everyday life. But the key was they were set apart for exclusive dedication to holy or sacred use. So what is God calling Israel to do? He, he is saying, I, I'm about to show up and perform wonders among you. But however, you need to be consecrated because you're a part of what's going on. God is planning on using Israel to show off his goodness and his glory to all the onlookers in the land. What does that mean? As Israel are marching through the waters, God is using their lives, their steps, their walk to show off and demonstrate his power to the people. Consecrate yourself to be used by God. Set yourself apart Don't get caught up with the foolishness of the Canaanites. Don't be watching all the TV that the Hittites are are watching, are streaming. Don't don't be Facebooking with the Jebusites because they ain't got nothing good to say anyway, and there's always an argument on their board. God is calling them to set their minds differently. To be consecrated means you ain't like everyone else. That God wants to use you. So God is planning on using the nation of Israel to show off his glory, but for their good. See, God provides divine direction when you are devoted to God's duty. So Israel, that, that meant setting apart their lives from common use. But for us, this means that we are setting apart our lives through the forgiveness of sin, by the blood of Jesus. That's how we're consecrated. It's the blood of Jesus that cleanses and washes away our sins. As Israel would have stood by the Jordan and washed their garments as a, a symbol of purification, Jesus Christ has stretched his arms wide and shed his blood in order that we may be cleansed right now. Devoted for his duty. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 tells us, For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2, 24 says, He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree that we may die to sin and what? And live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. It is the blood of Jesus that cleanses us. It is the blood of Jesus that washes us. It is the blood of Jesus that transforms us. If we're going to be devoted to God's duty, the blood, we have to touch the blood. We need transformation by the blood of Jesus. And only the blood can wash away this crimson stain. Isaiah 118, he says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though, though, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are like, are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. What is he saying? Through the blood of Jesus, that that stank, that nasty, that dark, that smelly, that ugly sin that is following you around will be washed away. And you can be cleansed. You, there, no, no more shame. There, there, there's no more guilt. There's, there's no more condemnation. There's, 
There's no more depression once the blood has touched you. He's saying walk in that. Walk in that. See, a, a, a life set apart for God's duty is not weighed down or entangled by sin. It's free. This past week, spending time with my children, uh, we're, we always watch cartoons together. And, and one that I like is Disney's is Planes. And if you had never seen Planes, it's about a, a crop-dusting plane who flies over fields and sprays crops, who wants to be a professional race airplane. So in the process of becoming this race airplane, he, 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 he trains and he is trying to get faster and quicker time, so they begin to tinker with this engine, and, and, they, and they teach him how to make sharper corners and, and nice cuts. But along the way, as he begins racing, someone looks at him and says, why are you still racing with your undercarriage? That's the piece that, it was the tank that would hold the chemicals to spray. And he was trying to be a race plane, but he still had this tank hooked up to him. He was trying to fly, he was trying to compete, he was trying to win, but he still had this tank attached to him. But then as soon as he decided to let it go, he became faster, he became swifter, he was able to compete. God is saying, when you devote yourself to me, and the blood of Jesus touches you and washes you clean, that sin that was on you, holding you down, weighing you down, will not hinder you or hold you back no longer. Do you really want to fly? Do you really want to fly? Do you really want to be in my will? Do you really want to achieve that all I have for you? Then you got to let the sin go. Let it go. It's, it's weighing you down. That the only reason that you keep the sin there is because you're familiar with it. It's what you've always had. It's what you've always done. But God is saying, I want to do something new in your life, and you got to let it go. Let the blood of Jesus wash you so you don't have to carry that baggage no more. Set your baggage down at the foot of the cross and stand up. Walk. Let him use your life. Devote yourself to godly things. Sin hinders your studies. You wonder why you keep getting C's and D's? You, you probably never noticed it. Sin will cause you to be distracted, to be uh, thoughtless and, and, and lazy and, and, and distracted by all of life. Sin does that. Sin caused you to be lazy in your marriage. Sin caused you to be, to be a lazy, lazy servant of Christ. Sin does this. It hinders, it holds you back, it restrains you. God is saying, let the blood of Jesus wash you. A life freed up from sin can be used by God for his glory and your good. What does this mean? What do we need to ask ourselves? Do you take time to reflect on how you may have been sinful this day? Do you make time for repentance and confession of sin? Do you actually tell God, I'm sorry? 
Do you rely more upon willpower or prayer power? Are you trying to do this thing yourself? I'm going to fix it. I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to do my thing. God, he doesn't want you to do your thing. He wants you to be washed by the blood of Jesus. Gaze upon his glory, be devoted to God's duty, but then also we see from the text that God is calling Israel to accept all of his authority. Verses 7 through 13, we see God say to Joshua in verse 7, I, today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. He, he, he's saying to, to Joshua, I, I will make much of you before the people. I will exalt you and lift you up so that the people will know who to follow, whose leadership to trust. But with that leadership comes authority. The people will need to listen to you, Joshua. And so they don't get it twisted to think that you're trying to, uh, trying to get in there and, and do your own thing. I will exalt you that they will follow you for my purposes. On a side note, we need to understand it's God who exalts. It's God who exalts. So we don't have to, we, look, 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 look. Christians, we don't have to politic. We don't have to play the game. We don't have to schmooze and, 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 and get in with the right people. We, we don't have to do that because our God holds all the doors and all the keys and all the favor. We don't have to get into that business of exalting ourselves. He says, I will exalt you, Joshua. I'm going to do this. Magnify you. But with it comes authority because you see Joshua is commanding the people. Joshua is commanding the priests. Joshua is commanding the officials. So we see that in the text there is this divinely appointed uh, uh, leadership and authority hierarchy that's in place. At the top, uh, in verse 9, is, is the word of God. And Joshua said to the people, come here and listen, listen to the words of the Lord your God. God's word is supreme over all the people. That's that Joshua has to give an account to God because of what the word of God says. So that, that's just a supreme authority. Under, under the word of God, we have Joshua commanding the people, commanding the officers, commanding the priests, and he, he's orchestrating things based upon what God has told him. And then even under Joshua, we have the officers letting the people know what they should be doing. What does all that mean? Israel could not choose who they would listen to. They needed to accept the authority of the leaders that God had given God is giving authority to certain people in your life in order, in order for his purposes and his means to play out. And it's all for his glory and our good. And the, the indication of their acceptance of all of God's authority, it wouldn't be their lips. It would be their feet. The indication of the people's acceptance would be their attendance and their actions. So God provides divine direction when you accept all God's authority. 
See, for us, it is accepting the authority of Jesus over all things and humbly depending upon him. We have to accept that we cannot save ourselves. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. Not your good works, not your church attendance, not being kind, not your charitable donations, your charitable tax deductions. God is saying that that acceptance comes from submitting yourself and aligning yourself under Jesus Christ. And acceptance is demonstrated when we depend upon Jesus. John 15, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Uh, uh, Accepting God's authority recognizes I can't do anything without Jesus. I must be abiding in him. God's authority over all your life actually provides freedom freedom. God's authority over your life should provide an extraordinary amount of comfort in the midst of chaos. Because in the midst of chaos and disturbance and where things are out of control, it is great to know that you serve a God who is still on the throne and still able to do whatever he he wants to do. Has power to do it. It's like a child wearing a life preserver on a boat in the middle of a storm. The child is not tearing at the life preserver saying, this thing gets on my nerves. This thing is restrictive. If anything, the child is clutching to the life preserver because their life is in danger. And saints, let me tell you, we are in the midst of a storm, in the midst of a war. We may not think so, but Satan hates you. He hates your children. He hates your family. And he's coming for you and everything that you care for. This is warfare. So Satan is coming for you. So instead of trying to throw off the restraints that God has given you, hold tightly, clutch the word of God, clutch the authority, because it is your life preserver. He wants to save you, not slave you. Ask yourself, Do you grumble or complain when someone in authority gives you something unsinful to do? Do you know the difference between hearing and listening? There's a difference. Do you regularly attend worship services? What? What does that mean? Did you know that showing up for worship is actually an indication that you accept God's authority in your life? Did you you know that prayer is an indication that you actually accept God's authority in your life? Did Did you understand that reading your Bible is actually an indicator that God has authority over you? Do you know being kind to your brothers and sisters in Christ is an indication that God has authority? Did you know that giving God praise even when you don't feel like it, is an indication that God has authority over your life? He wants all of your life, not part of it. Lastly, God calls Israel to watch him work. Verses 14 through 17 is simply the people got up, 
the priest uh, uh, had the Ark of the Covenant, and when that priest put his pinky toe in the water. And I like what the text does, because it makes a note that says, in this season, the, the waters of the Jordan overflow. What is, what is he doing? He, he's showing you that this is not just a regular flow of water. That, that the Jordan is, in and of itself is actually not a deep or wide stream, but during this time, God has chosen to show off his glory by crossing the river at the worst time that you can cross the river. It is overflowing. The banks are overflowed. The water is backed up, and it is completely impossible for anyone to cross that on their own. But God says, put your pinky toe in the water. And when they put their pinky toe in the water, the water begins to stand up. The text says like a heap. And, and the text mentions a city called Adam, and, and that's actually like 15 miles upstream. So it was wide enough and dry enough for two million people to walk over unscathed. What is God teaching us in the text? He's telling us that when we are obedient, when we are seeking his divine direction, that we don't have to do it ourselves, that we ain't got to fix it, we ain't got to rig it. He calls us to sit back and watch him work. Watch him show off his glory through broken, foolish people like us. What does that mean for us today? That means that while we are in service of God, we can sit back and watch God show off, bringing salvation, bringing transformation, using broke, broken down, weak, wimpy people like us for his glory. You don't have to have a certain profile to be used. He just asks you to show up. He's asking you to put your pinky toe in the water. Try me. Try me and see. Taste the Lord. Taste, taste and see that the Lord is good. He, try him. See that he can bring radical change, radical transformation. Where you thought there was no hope, he brings hope. Where, where there's nothing but doubt, he brings victory. Hey, he will trans, transform and change the situation. But you know what we got to do? We got to take our hands off of this. We always got we got our hands in some stuff. Get your hands off the mix and let God show up. What does that mean? What do we need to do there? Ask yourself. Do you have to be in control to feel like things will be done right? How often do you pray prayers of thanksgiving only? Would others consider you a grateful person? I believe in this text, this is a, this same framework, this, this same theological underpinnings that are here are for us because though God's methods change, his character does not. Just as God was providing direction for Israel's next steps, God wants to provide direction for your next steps. 
He wants to answer the questions of life for you. He, he, how, how will you know what the next step of your life should be? How will you cross the Jordans of your life? How will you know when your life is headed in the right direction? What high school should I go to? What university? What career? What spouse? What city? God wants to speak to that. We only need to follow him. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things I would add unto you. Let us learn from what God was teaching Israel. Following God's lead in your life requires the same framework Israel follows. Gaze upon the glory of God in Christ. Be devoted to God's duty in Christ. And accept all of God's authority in Christ. Then you will have the freedom to sit back and watch God work. You should follow God's lead because his promises provide divine direction. Let us pray.